0: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. For each episode of the podcast, we choose an interesting new book on some area of sports, and we talk with the author about that book and about some of the deeper issues in the study of sports. For this episode, I'm pleased to have Andrew Zimblist as a guest. Andy is the Robert A. Woods Professor of Economics at Smith College in Massachusetts, He has written more than 20 books and dozens of scholarly articles on comparative economics and the economics of sports. He is a frequent commentator for news and sports media on the economic side of sports, and he has served numerous times as a consultant for professional teams and league offices and as expert witness for legal cases and congressional hearings related to college and professional sports here in the U.S., Andy's particular area of interest and expertise is the economics of baseball. And for this episode, we are discussing his book In the Best Interests of Baseball, Governing the National Pastime, published in March 2013 by the University of Nebraska Press. This is a new edition of a book that was first published in 2006, which looks at the administration of Major League Baseball and in particular, the evolution of the office of commissioner, from the first commissioner of baseball, Kennesaw Mountain Landis, to the current commissioner, Bud Selig. This is a book that is both accessible and revealing, and I will say, as a lifelong baseball fan, there is plenty that I learned from the book. And I will add, for those fans who have a negative view of Bud Selig, and I know this includes a good number of baseball fans, you will come away from Andy's book with a new appreciation for League and his tenure as commissioner. So without any further delay, let's turn to my interview with Andy Zimbalist. This week's guest on New Books and Sports is Andy Zimbalist. Andy, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you very much.
0: So we usually start each episode by having the guest say a few words about his background. I will say, by way of an introduction, that Andy has published more than 20 books on economic development and the economic of sports. And his turns as a consultant, advisor, and commentator fill a a long, long list. Uh, But, Andy, I'll also point out that your early academic work was in comparative economics, and in particular, the economics of Latin America. So I'll ask you to start. What brought your move uh, from comparative economics into the economics of sport?
1: March of 1990, I was putting my then 11-year-old son, Jeff, to bed. Um, It was the middle of March, and it was a Thursday night, and I lied down in bed with him, and I was looking at his wall, which was plastered, with baseball cards. Uh, he had been talking all winter long about his Little League team for the forthcoming spring and summer season uh, with great excitement. And then this one particular evening, he said to me, Dad, I don't think I'm going to play Little League this year. And I said, oh, really? Why, Jeff? And he said, well, the major leaguers aren't playing, so I figure I won't be able to play either. There was a lockout going on
0: that
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Faye Vincent um, eventually ended. And uh, I didn't know much about uh, the economics of of sports, but I did know that what what Jeff was fearful of was not going to come to pass. So I explained to him that his Little League would happen anyway, he was happy. And then he said, hey, Dad, you're an economist. You like baseball. Uh, You just finished your book on Panama. Why don't you write a book on the economics of baseball? That was March of 1990. The next day was a Friday. I didn't teach that day. I went into the bowels of the Smith College Nielsen Library to start reading about the economics of baseball, thinking that it was would be foolish to completely disregard the sage advice of an 11-year-old son, <laughs> um, and I discovered two things. One is that very, very little had been written about the economics of baseball, and secondly that baseball had an antitrust exemption that dated back to 1922, conferred by the Supreme Court. Um, And I went back to my office and I started thinking about what that meant, the Supreme Court antitrust exemption. And about two hours later, I had written a three-page book proposal. Um, And I decided to send it off to a publishing house called Basic Books, which had a reputation for being a cross between an academic and a popular publishing house. It also had an editor who I had heard wonderful things about, a man by the name of Steve Fraser, So I just sent it off to him, thinking that I would never hear again, given that this was not my area of expertise. And I thought that probably anybody who read my book proposal would think it was crazy. Uh, But about three weeks later, he called me up and he said, "Uh, we love your proposal. We'll give you a $30,000 advance if you write the book. And I wrote the book. It became a business bestseller. It came out in 1992. Uh, since very little had been written about the economics of sports, I was I was in on the ground floor, and that of course meant that after the book came out, I started getting a lot of exposure. I got a lot of requests to be an expert consultant. Got requests to be on television and radio shows. Got requests to uh, do more writing, and it just kind of snowballed from there. Uh, I went from baseball to do, doing work in lots of other sports, and uh, for for me, one of the exciting things was not so much about being able to write about and be involved in sports that certainly was fun but the more exciting thing for me was that as you pointed out i had been doing comparative systems and economic development not just in latin america but also in uh, eastern europe and western europe and and asia Uh, all of which was very exciting for me when i was doing it but now all of a sudden i found myself working in areas of public policy in my own country and frankly it, it felt uh, less alienating. I felt more involved it felt more gratifying still uh, to to be involved in u s policy issues and so that that kind of uh, put a lot of a lot of wind in my sails and so I just sailed along becoming a sports economist, more so by the day. Mm-hmm.
0: So, Andy, you said that your your first book in the economics of sports was on on baseball, and uh, you have done work on other professional sports and on college sports. Uh, but I want to ask about looking at the economics of baseball. Is there something um, – uh, what are the unique features uh, that you find in doing research on the economics of baseball, whether in terms of, of – The structure or the problems that you find? Is is there something that distinguishes baseball from other sports from an economic standpoint?
1: I think there's a lot. Number one, that there's more output. There are 162 games during the year rather than 82 or 16. Um, Another is that baseball has this antitrust exemption that I alluded to earlier. Another is that some of the sports uh, began such as the NFL began with revenue sharing built into its uh, into its DNA and baseball did not begin with that so it's harder to harder to structure structure it back in uh, so I another is the the, the historical nature uh, of the union and union management relations and how they've they've changed over time uh, so I think there are several things that distinguish baseball economically from the other sports of course they have uh, very basic similarities, but uh, each each one is is different in its own way mm-hmm.
0: well let's turn to your book and uh, I would say uh, being a historian that this this book is more a work of history than than economics in that it focuses on the development, over time, of the Office of Commissioner of Baseball, leading to the present tenure of Bud Selig. So uh, so perhaps we should start at the beginning. When, when and why did the owners in Major League Baseball uh, decide that they needed a commissioner?
1: So this uh, goes way back, really, to the agreement between, the basic agreement between the, the National League and the American League in 1903. Um, At that point in time, each of the leagues had its own ruler, uh, director or president. um, And it was very clear that the the presidents who were running those leagues were not on top of their game, that there were dissensions amongst the owners, um, that they were leaning on the president uh, of the league too much, given what the president was either able or willing to do. And uh, there was generalized chaos. It, it got so bad, I think it was in the year 1908, 1909, that the president of the National League actually committed suicide. Um, then they went through this period of uh, being challenged by the Federal League in 1913, 14, and 15, which ended up in the Supreme Court uh, in 1922. Uh, once again, it was clear that baseball did not have a clear direction, did not have a clear strategy uh, and it needed a, a leader to coordinate everything. Uh, then to compound all of that, in 1919, you have the Black Sox scandal. Uh, 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 corruption clearly was uh, rampant in baseball, and they needed a policeman to to not only make rules but to govern and implement the rules. So all of these pressures come together, and um, the, the two leagues decide that they, they need to have a commissioner that, stands over both of the leagues. The leagues were separate business entities at the time, Mm -hmm. and they remained separate business entities all the way uh, until about 20 years ago, or less than 20 years ago. Uh, But they felt like uh, they needed somebody to coordinate and and govern both of the leagues together. Uh, They ended up picking uh, Judge Kennesaw Mountain Landis in part because Kennesaw Mountain Landis saw how Helpless, the owners were without a strong leader, and basically he demanded almost dictatorial powers. Uh, And I think that the owners, on the one hand, were reluctant to give a commissioner dictatorial powers, but on the other hand, they recognized that they needed to have somebody who was very powerful, who could uh, make necessary decisions in in order to uh, steer steer the ship on the right course.
0: Mm So I'll admit that my impression of, of Kennesaw Mountain Landis is, is based largely on the film version of Eight Eight Men Out, in which he's depicted as something of a, a surly old man, very rigid, this unbending sense of morality. How much does that match up with the Landis of history?
1: I think that's right. I think that's who he is. <laughs> uh, <laughs> again, I think that the owners were re- reluctant to surrender that amount of power to him. But he was also, you have to remember that this guy was a judge who took on Standard Oil
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: and knocked him down, uh, took, do- took on John D. Rockefeller and knocked him down. So he was all of those things that you say, but he's also somebody who who had a reputation that was uh, somebody who, who was strong and decisive and powerful, and uh, in, in spite of his idiosyncrasies, he was somebody who was widely respected as, as a judge. And so I think on balance, the owners thought, This this is the guy we
0: need. Mm -hmm. So then looking at the commissioners who followed, who uh, did not have as much power, did not have as much respect as as Landis. Was it a case of the owners seeking to retract the the power that they had given to Landis? Or was it more of a matter that the individuals who held the office of commissioner just didn't have his force of will and personality to uh, to take that authority?
1: Yeah, I think it's all of those things. You know, um, even Landis himself, after the first couple of years, uh, as, as owners began to uh, disagree with some of the decisions that he was taking, Landis himself did not have dictatorial powers. Mm-hmm. And Landis himself increasingly became a tool of the owners, uh, given the fact that this commissioner who was somehow supposed to stand above baseball and make decisions in the best interests of baseball, was really an individual who was hired by the owners and could be fired by the owners. And if he was not doing the owner's bidding, if the if a commissioner got too big for his britches and started thinking, gee, um, I, I don't think this is good for the owners, but I think it's good for the fans, and I think it's good for the game, and so I'm going to outlaw all strikes, or I'm going to outlaw all, uh, all lockouts. If, if a commissioner started leaning in that direction, uh, then what happened with, with all of the commissioners is that he got cut down by the owners. And uh, part part of the, the success that Landis had was his very surly and aggressive personality and his reputation when he came into the office. The commissioners who followed didn't have those characteristics and therefore never had at least the initial independence and in power that, uh, that Landis had. So happy Chandler. Uh, you know at his first press conference as a commissioner uh he he told he told the assembled people this was this was actually at a press dinner he told the assembled people that he wanted to sing them a song from his home state he started singing to all these people in New York my old Kentucky home uh it, w- it was very it was very charming if you're from Kentucky but for people from New York it seemed terribly unsophisticated and and uh it, and then he made some missteps and I, I think he never had the authority and the recognition that, that, that Landis had at the beginning. And we can go one by one through the remaining commissioners. Uh, it wasn't until you got to Peter Uberoff in the early 1980s that you had a commissioner who said, I'm going to take the bull by the horns and, and, and start showing people how to behave. But the problem with Uberoff is that he was taking the bull by the horns by orchestrating or choreographing collusion in the players' market. Uh, which he got caught doing, and so he was in trouble right away, and he was only around for a few years mm-hmm. um, it 's really not until Bud Sealy comes in first as the acting commissioner in ninety two and then as a full commissioner um, some some eight years or so later that um, that the role of the commissioner really changes it 's not until Seeley comes in that the owners say up front, we are going to acknowledge. That we want somebody to lead this sport who has our interests primarily in mind that the fact that we we as owners hire the commissioner and we as owners fire the commissioner means that the commissioner should be our CEO the CEO of the industry of baseball and Steelig of course had been since 1970 the owner of the Milwaukee Brewers and he very much had the owner's interests in mind, and he came into the job thinking is, by golly, I'm going to promote the owner's interests, and thinking also that by promoting the owner's interests, that he was promoting the interests of the sport, because if the owner's interests were promoted, then the sport would be profitable, and then revenue would grow, then money can get reinvested, and that's what they wanted to do. So there were no, no, there were no longer any ifs, ands, and buts about it. Um, Seelig had a job to do. It was clear. it was no longer the sense that uh Seelig had to pay equal attention and equally care about players and owners or players and uh players and fans. Um, it was now about owners, mm-hmm. and Seelig had a very, very hard road to hoe when he came in, but he he managed to take the necessary initial steps to to bring the owners more or less onto the same page. And set the stage for uh, now basically 20 years of very, very impressive and steady uh, revenue growth. And since 1995, as you know, also set the stage for labor peace. Mm -hmm.
0: So before we get to, uh, I, I have questions about Bud, C- Bud Selig and your view of his time as commissioner. Um, before that, though, I want to ask about the development of the office, and in particular the the phrase that's at the title of your book, in the best interests of baseball. And this gives something of the background to, as you say, uh, when Selig becomes first interim commissioner, The owners say we want a commissioner who's going to run baseball in our interest. So, could you talk about what was in the commissioner's job description before that? This idea that uh, he was responsible for the best interests of baseball and why that phrase was part of the commissioner's job description.
1: Well, I think here's basically you have a lot of forces operating on baseball in the early 1920s when they defined the job. One of those forces was that baseball was still in the throes of figuring out what its status was vis-a-vis the Sherman and Clayton Antitrust Acts. And what, what they wanted to do was to portray the image that they had with, within their ranks this all-powerful, independent individual who was going to look after the consumer, the fan. And as long as you had this all-powerful, independent individual who was looking after the fan's interest, what was in the best interest of baseball was what was in the best interest of the fan, the consumer. As long as the consumer was being looked out for, you didn't have to worry about antitrust law. This antitrust law was all about protecting consumers from monopoly power. So I think that that was at the heart of, of their decision to craft the office, or at least craft the description of the office, in this way. And as I pointed out, over time it became clearer and clearer whatever they were trying to portray in terms of public relations uh, was contradictory to the fundamental and objective reality, which was the commissioner was hired by and could be fired by the owners. So he was going to do the owners bidding or he was going to be around no more. Uh, and that's that's the way it, it worked in practice, but it wasn't until Seelig came along that a commissioner actually behaved in In that way, that is to say, behaved as somebody who was representing directly and explicitly the owner's interests
0: so in introducing Sealig to us, one thing uh uh I'll ask you to talk about is his love for the game and and this is clear in the book that uh uh bud Seelea is a baseball fan
1: yes, yeah, so he bud bud was brought up in milwaukee um he uh used to go down to before Milwaukee had the Milwaukee Braves uh he used to go down to uh Chicago and watch Cubs games with with his uncle um when when the Braves came to Milwaukee in in the mid 1950s uh bud became a big Milwaukee Braves fan when the owners when the owners of the Milwaukee Braves decided that they were going to sell a small share of their their asset of, of team ownership locally in the stock market to local Milwaukeeans. Uh Bud was an individual who bought in. He D- Bud and his father ran a, a car car sales and car car leasing car leasing business, and uh, they they uh, were comfortable financially. And Bud had some money, and he invested in in the stock. He was an owner of the Milwaukee Braves. When when the Braves went to Atlanta in 1965. Uh, Bud was uh, not not only impressed by it, but he was also angered by it uh, by it, and energized by it. And Bud then spent uh, five years trying to get... Uh, for, well, first he was trying to get the Braves to stay in Milwaukee. And there was an antitrust suit against the Braves that, that Bud was a central figure in. He was suing the National League, Bud Selig was. Uh, but he lost that. He went up to the, the Supreme Court in Wisconsin where they lost that. But once they lost the, the Braves... Bud then started a group to try to bring a new team to Milwaukee. Of course, he succeeded when the old Seattle Pilots went bankrupt before the 1970 season, um, and Bud was able to buy that team for something like uh, eight million dollars and become the owner of the Brewers. So he was uh, he was involved with baseball as a fan from his youth, and he became involved with the Milwaukee Braves first as a fan and then as an owner. And stayed involved as somebody who was trying to lobby to get baseball to come back to Milwaukee. Not an easy thing to do, by the way. Milwaukee is uh, mm-hmm. uh, not one of the larger cities in the United States, and wouldn't wouldn't be a natural host for a Major League Baseball club when Major League Baseball had uh, back in back in those days had about twenty four teams or so. Um, and even it's not it's not even one of the largest thirty cities in the United States, so it wouldn't even be a natural host today. But uh, he but immediately became very involved in all of the ownership groups um, in baseball. So the, the commissioner's office has a number of ownership groups that look at particular issues. Uh, they have a group today, for instance, that looks at the playing rules. They have another group that looks looks at the, uh, the use of uh, instant replay. There's another group that looks at uh, stadium issues. There's another group that looks at revenue sharing. There's another group that looks at labor relations. So they have seven, eight, nine, ten different uh, different groups of owners that uh, form committees and support the work of the commissioner's office. Bud got very involved in several of those committees in the 1970s. Uh, he came to run the, the Labor Relations Committee in the 1980s and, and became very central in the, in the overall governance of baseball during the, the labor unrest of, of the 1980s and, and early 1990s. Um, one of one of Bud's, I think, most remarkable attributes is that he communicates extraordinarily effectively. Uh, he, he does this with everybody, but he he's somebody who can listen and and quickly pick up on what's bothering somebody or what their concerns are, and then be responsive to them. And and Bud, in his in his work on these various committees, got to know almost all the owners and got most of the owners to think that he was a reasonable guy who understood who understood their experience uh, as owners of baseball teams. Uh, and so when the owners decided to get rid of Fay Vincent um, in, in the early 1990s, Bud was really the one guy, because they wanted somebody for the first time to say, okay, I'm the commissioner, but I'm also representing the owners. Bud was the one guy who was going to do that, who most of the owners were were, were able to trust and felt good about.
0: And when he first took office in 1992, so he uh, he insisted he would only be acting or interim commissioner for for a few months. That he didn't want the job permanently. And I confess that when I was reading those comments, his comments in the sports pages 20 odd years ago, I I thought that was suspect. I I thought no, he does want to be the permanent commissioner. So, uh, but was it was it true that that he thought he would only be in the job for a short time?
1: Yeah, you should ask Bud that question. I- <laughs> But, but excited, i don't have access think, to bud <laughs> i I think that he has everybody totally confused yeah about, yeah uh, he he said back then he he told his wife that he was only going to be an acting commissioner for two months until they found somebody else that was back in 1992 uh and then he he got you know the three-year appointment he said this will be it i, I certainly don't want to do it after three years and each time he got reappointed he'd say the same thing he said i don't want to do this you know i he say, "I'm an owner, or I I almost became a, a history professor, and I want to go do this. I want to go do that. I don't want to be commissioner anymore." Um, and He kept on saying it, and uh, after a while, people just you know kind of treated it as um, uh, a ritual that this is this is the way Bud says that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, he's he's going to continue to be commissioner by saying that he doesn't want to be commissioner. Um, and so now we're at a point where Bud. Uh, Bud's term ends after next year, and uh, he'll be 80 years old at that point in time. And of course, he's saying it all over again. Yeah. He's saying, "No, I don't want to do it again. It's time for me to to step down, and uh, I want to want to go and be a professor at the history at the in the history department at the University of Wisconsin, and so on and so forth." And it's a little bit like the boy who cried wolf. You um, stop listening after a while. I happen to believe that um, this is the first time that he said that that he meant it. I, I think that he he's ready he's ready to step down. Um, he he thinks that the game is on on good solid footing. There's there's labor peace. Uh, there's good revenue growth. There are all sorts of growth opportunities out there. Um, I think he's tired of of many of the internal conflicts that that still prevail in baseball. And in fact, that he would like to write about his uh, his experiences in baseball and his sense of the the historical trajectory that baseball has taken and that that it will take going forward, um, and I think the owners who have been fearful of letting Bud go because Bud was the, Bud has been the force that has held the industry together. Now I'm not saying that he, he's done it single handedly, but he has he has directed the program and called called upon the proper lieutenants to help him uh, keep the game in one piece because what happened right after bud came into office in 1992 is that they confronted the strike of 94 and 95 and uh, maybe you'll give me a chance to talk about that in a second question because or in another question because it's extremely important extremely interesting period but bud got baseball through that period and the same kinds of tensions and pressures that existed then continue to exist today Uh, They exist more below the surface. They have been controlled and tapped down. Uh, But I think the owners who have been around, particularly the owners who were around in the early 1990s, are fearful that if Bud leaves, that that agglutinizing force that's Mm. held them together all of these years will disappear, and there will be nothing to hold them together anymore, and they'll be thrust back into the jungle of the early 1990s, and it'll be very damaging to the sport. So I think that that fear uh, over the years has uh, led the owners each time to go to Bud and say, please continue on, we need you to continue on. But I think the owners now, in addition to Bud, the owners have finally realized that uh, Bud's days will not continue forever, and this is, uh, this is a good time to make the break. Uh, and, their, and their challenge will be now to find uh, who's the man to replace him.
0: And I was going to ask, actually, about uh, um, uh, the early 90s, and in particular something that you write about throughout the book is, is this meeting of baseball owners at a resort in Kohler, Wisconsin, in, in 1994. And that, that uh, you write about that as really the, the low point uh, in these struggles of the early 90s. So can you talk about that, and what were the issues at stake that the owners were facing then? Okay, so listen,
1: it, What I, I mentioned earlier that that the NFL – has had revenue sharing built into its DNA. When the NFL was created back in 20, uh, they, in in their statutes, said that the home team gets to keep 60% of the gate revenue and the visiting team gets 40%. Um, and then in the 50s, when television became an item, uh, Pete Rozelle started lobbying Congress so that they could have the Sports Broadcasting Act, which would enable the team to, excuse me, the league to sell television rights to all the games and then have all, all of that money shared equally across the teams. Um, so it's worked very fluidly in the NFL, this notion that all the teams compete with each other. Uh, you can't have, you can't have uh, professional football if there's only one team. You can't have professional baseball if there's only one team. You need all the teams. And for the game to be interesting, you need to have uncertainty in the outcome and for that to happen, you need to have more and more equal distribution of resources. That's always been ingrained in the NFL structure. It's never been, in, or had, it had never been ingrained, uh, it, it, with a few exceptions, but basically it had not been ingrained in baseball structure. So then we come into the 1990s, and what do we find in the 1990s? 1989, the New York Yankees signed an unheard of back then contract with MSG Television Network. Uh, for four hundred and ninety million dollars over twelve years with a fifty million dollar upfront payment, uh, this is a, in an era when most teams are getting three four five million dollars of uh, of local revenue local television revenue. Uh, then we have the um, the beginnings of the stadium movement, the new stadium movement. Uh, that happens with uh, the Baltimore Orioles, Larry Lucchino, Janet Marie Smith, where they they tear down the old Memorial Stadium and they build Camden Yards in the downtown area of Baltimore, just off of the highway artery that leads to, to D.C. Um, this is an enormously successful model that almost immediately raises the revenue of the Baltimore Orioles by $30, $30 million a year. So we have the new inequality coming from local television contracts. We have new inequality coming from the stadium drive uh, initiated by, by the Baltimore Orioles. And then we have the collapse of the baseball television agreement with CBS, which had been bringing $16 million a year to each of the teams equally. And that number goes down to, or without going into details, it goes down to below $5 million. So there's all of a sudden a burst in inequality. And the small city owners are saying, how are we going to survive? You know, it's already problematic in these days of free agency. We have to go to the same players market as the owners to find our players. Uh, and now all of a sudden they're getting richer and we're getting poor. Uh, this can't work anymore. So the owners basically jump on each other's backs or start screaming. There, there's a lot of evidence that that the the owners couldn't get on the same page. They back back. Uh, at the beginning of 1993, their chief negotiator then, Dick Ravitch, wrote a letter to Don Fear, the head of the Players Association, saying, uh, we need to start talking urgently about a new collective bargaining agreement. Urgently, he said. That was January of '93. It wasn't until 18 months after that that the owners were able to sit down and talk to the, to the, to the players about a new CBA. It's because they didn't agree with each other what they wanted. So they had all these meetings, and one of the meetings was in Kohler, Wisconsin. And this is a bucolic resort, lovely resort on Lake Michigan that's uh, an hour or so north of Milwaukee. Um, They went to this resort because they thought it would be a place where people could be peaceful and deliberative (laughs) and sensible. But what happened is that the owners formed into caucuses, depending on how large your, your market was. And it turned out that the owners couldn't meet in the same room. There was so much rancor and animosity amongst them. And Bud Selig uh, uh, and a few other people end up running messages around from one caucus to another caucus. Uh, but the meeting finally broke up. The owners were kind of screaming at each other things like, you're not going to put your hand in my pocket. Uh, and, and then the small city owners had a, had had a, had a uh, an arrow in their quiver, which um, had to do – I don't want to get into the details, but they basically had the ability to undermine – the, uh, the big cities' teams' local television contracts. Uh, so they were at war with each other. And in this context, Seelig basically got on the phone after the Kohler meetings broke up. He got on the phone with each of the owners and said, look, guys, we're about to blow up the national pastime. We cannot behave like this. We're behaving like children if we continue to do this All bets are off, and we're going to destroy baseball. And he would spend hours on the phone with each individual owner, day after day after day, uh, until he calmed them down enough to get them to come to some more meetings together. Uh, And it wasn't until they had a meeting the following spring, in uh, either late winter or early spring, in Fort Lauderdale, that they came to some agreement. And again, I don't want to go into great detail about it, but fundamentally what happened was that the owners decided that they would begin, very gingerly, a program of of revenue sharing with each other. And Bud took that. Selig took that initial agreement and built upon it. So Once he got the revenue-sharing foot in the door, sharing revenue from rich teams to poor teams, once he got his foot in the door, uh, he started sticking his leg and his whole body in the door, and the revenue-sharing system grew to approximately the $400 million level that we have today, along with a luxury tax Um, on high payrolls, and and some other features that work in a very salutary way to promote balance and to promote financial health. Part of the problem, let me just end with this, part of the problem is that the same tensions that existed back in the 1990s, which were material-based tensions, are still there, and the same fighting uh, is still there. But what Bud has done is he's worked out a way to channel it so that it doesn't explode. Uh, it's not an easy thing to do, and 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 do, the way he does it is by the use of stick and carrot. Uh, he he manipulates owners. He says, if you do this for me, I'll do that for you. Uh, he makes side deals. Uh, it's it's a it's a patchwork system that's that many believe only bud can hold together so the next commissioner is going to have an enormous challenge on his hands
0: well i was going to ask that then because uh so you finished the the first edition of this book in 2005 and then in, in the closing chapter of the first edition you had something of a mixed view of the state of baseball at the time in your new epilogue you give high marks to bud Sealing in his time as commissioner and and uh you talk positively about the state of baseball today but let me ask you when when bud selig does leave um is is the the structure what he's built in terms of the structure after 1994 uh will that hold or is it a matter of bud as the individual uh working working the different owners uh is he the one holding the system together i'll I'll ask your view what do you think is going to happen
1: well, first of all, let me say I don't. I don't think my view really changed between '05 and the new book. Okay. Um, uh, except insofar as today we have an additional seven years of labor peace that we didn't have then, uh, we have additional economic growth uh, that we didn't have then, and the baseball has has sailed through the period of our, our great recession in the United States. Uh, and we have some new innovations in the game that continue to propel the game forward. So I don't think my view has changed. I think back in in the 2005 edition, I was very positive about the role that that Bud was playing, uh, and I continue to be now very positive. Except that now there's additional evidence that he continues to do the good job that he's been doing. And by the way, you know, I, I have my share of criticisms of Bud as well. I don't, yeah. I don't, I don't think he's an angel. I just happen to think he's, he's a very good commissioner and the best commissioner that, that baseball has had. Uh, having said that, um, I think that there are uh, competent people, very competent people, who have worked with Bud over the years who know the, uh, the formula for how you, how you make this thing work and know the owners and know how to work with the owners to get them to compromise uh so i'm uh, i although I think it it's not going to be an easy transition um, I'm optimistic that uh, that the new commissioner uh, provided that it will be one of the people I think it could be and, and I think I'm pretty sure it will be one of those people <laughs> um, uh, I, I'm optimistic that that person will will be able to do the job that needs to be done. Look, there are some real conflicts out there still, and some real issues. I don't think they're going to go away. Right now there's a big fight um, uh, in, in Baltimore and Washington over the, the, the regional sports network there, Masson, uh, a fight between, uh, between the Washington Nationals and Peter Angelos, the owner of the Orioles. Uh, there's a very hot issue out in California about whether the A's can move to San Jose or not. Uh, the Giants don't want them to, and the A's think they need a new market. Uh, there's an there's an issue in Tampa about uh, whether whether or not the Rays can survive if they continue to play in the trop, uh, Tropicana Field, which uh, they're under lease to play there until 2007, and the mayor of St. Petersburg, Mr. Foster, wants to hold them to the lease. Uh, there's another issue that pops up uh, in in Los Angeles because the Dodgers have signed a deal with Time Warner that seems to be worth about 300 million dollars a year in local television money, uh, and how does that money? enter into, or how much of that money enters into the revenue-sharing uh, system in baseball. These are all very tense issues, uh, and most of them are tense issues between owners. I don't know if they're going to get solved uh, in the short run, and they're very likely uh, they're going to be on the plate of the new commissioner. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I think I can envision paths forward in, in all of the cases, uh, but they're not uh, they're not easily found solutions This stuff's going to require a lot of work
0: mm-hmm. andy you stated at the start of your book that uh um there's this conventional notion that the n a the n f l is uh is the model professional sports league in terms of its its management and in terms of its governance um uh do you hold that view in terms of looking at the the n f l as opposed to major league baseball
1: uh, yeah, yeah so well i think so yeah okay. i think so i think it's uh I because of, because of the fact that the revenue, revenue sharing is in its DNA and has always been there, I think that the extent of the struggles, the, ex, the extent of the discordance, uh, and discordance, by the way, what, what that means basically is when you have a lot of discordance, league management has to be crisis management. Mm-hmm. Rather than if you can get the owners quiet enough, to sh- stop yelling at each other long enough, they can start looking into the future and trying to plan. Any good business needs to plan, needs to have a plan going forward. The more discordant the owners are with each other, the more difficult and impossible it is to plan. But The NFL historically has not had that level of discordance. Now, th- th- to be sure, there have been struggles in the NFL. I could, If we had the time, I could catalog them for you. But they just haven't been uh, as deep or as rife as they've been in baseball uh, and, and, and other sports. So I do think that the, the fact that you have the sharing model from the beginning has really eased the way for the NFL. Now, the NFL today has a different problem. Uh, and It's not a problem, uh, I don't think, of of historical governance of the league. It's a problem that's popped up, which is the problem of concussions mm-hmm. and uh I don't know how they're going to solve it, but I think it's a profound problem. It, do, it doesn't have to do with historical issues or common issues to American team sports and, and league governance. It has to do with the nature of football and, and the, 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 the contact and the violence um, and the fact that players are getting bigger and stronger and faster than they've ever been before, so the contact that they're having is more deleterious. And the NFL is trying to deal with it, right? They're trying to outlaw certain kinds of contact um, and head tackles and saw head-butting and so on. Um, but whatever they do, it's going to make some fundamental changes in, in the way football is, is perceived. Um, and I think that's a, that's, a, that's a real challenge for the game going forward.
0: Andy, we're almost out of time. I just have a couple more questions for you. And uh, one thing I was, I was interested to learn about at the start of the book uh, was how you talked about your work in the mid-'90s uh, to start a third major baseball league, and uh, I want to ask about that in in light of the success of Bud League as commissioner and the strength of Major League Baseball today. In in your view, uh, is a challenger to the two major leagues still something that's needed in baseball?
1: I don't think it's possible. Okay, um, you know, I in part learned that lesson in the mid nineties. Uh, I, I, was, I was called on to be involved in that league as an economic consultant. I w- it, was not my, it was not originally my idea, but um, some members of Congress and, and a well-known investment banker came to me and they said, we want to start a new league and we want to start it on different principles because Major League Baseball is not structured properly. Um, and we got, we got pretty far. Um, but look, here's the problem. The problem is that if you're going to start a rival league today, unlike when people started rival leagues uh, in the 19th century or the Federal League in 1913 and 14, when you start a rival league today, uh, to make it viable, you have to have uh, good players. Maybe not the very best players, but you have to have some, some charismatic, very good players. Uh, in order to get those players, you have to pay them competitive wages. So you're going to have to find money to pay some of your players on each team $15 million, $20 million. Where does the money come from? Well, look at, look at the structure of baseball today. Uh, large, large sums of money come from local television contracts. Large sums of money come from national television contracts. Large sums of money come from the new, new modern stadiums that they play in with luxury boxes and club seats and catering facilities and signage and so on and so forth. Um, to build a stadium costs these days $700 million, $1.5 billion, depending on where it is. Where are you going to get that kind of money? Uh, well, until now, 65% of new stadium money has been public money. So how are you going to go? How is an owner for a new league going to go to a city and say, uh, we've got this great idea, we've got a great design, people love baseball, I want I want you to give me $700 million to build a new stadium? No, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen in this fiscal environment in the United States. Um, it probably wouldn't even happen in a sound fiscal environment in the United States. So you're not going to get the stadiums to play in. You're going to, you're going to end up playing in you know, high school-type or college-type stadiums. You won't generate enough money. You're not going to get the television contracts from Fox or ESPN for, for a startup up league. Um, you're not going to get corporations willing to do serious corporate sponsorships. So where is your money going to come from that will enable you to pay the stars to get the stars to leave Major League Baseball and come to the new league? I think the barriers to entry are just much too formidable for there to be a rival league today. And and hence, it makes more sense, in my view, to talk about reforming the the existing model and make it as fan-friendly as possible rather than to, to try to create competition with a rival league. Mm-hmm.
0: And to finish up, Andy, I'll ask, uh, uh, you, you hinted earlier that you have an idea of who is going to uh, follow Bud Selig as, as commissioner. but But let's say that the baseball owners decide to tap an academic economist as as the next commissioner so what would be if if you were the commissioner what would be the first thing you would change in baseball on day one
1: um i don't know i have to i have to think about it i have not contemplated that as a possible outcome (laughs) Uh, um so I, I I really want to think about it I mean, I, one thing that I think needs to be done and this is not necessarily the, the most crucial thing to do but one of the things that I would do is I would expand the use of instant replay um, in my mind it is unfortunate in the extreme that we have the video technology to have a clear sense of whether calls were made correctly or incorrectly uh, yet Baseball, other than the, the home run calls, has been unwilling to use that technology. Uh, I, I think that the the way in which it's being used or has been used in football is actually exciting for the fans. It, it, yes, it does lengthen the football game because you have to wait for a few minutes when there are these plays that are uncertain. It does lengthen the game, but I think it's actually a nice thing. You're watching on television and you're debating uh, whether the call was made right or not, and you're having experts look at it and explain the rules. Um, I think that that's fun. I think it's something that enhances the game, even though it makes it a little bit a little bit longer. But more importantly, I, I think that you want to have the, the games be the outcome of correct calls and not the unfortunate outcomes of incorrect calls. Uh, that, of course, that principle, I think, becomes more important as, as games become more important as you get closer to the end of the season or you're in the postseason. But I would uniformly uh, expand the, the, uh, the terrain of, of instant replay. Uh, and you, you, one, one, one could do it by, uh, you know, doing something like in, in football where you get two challenges, and if you're, if you're right, you get to have your challenge back, and if you're wrong – uh, then you lose your challenge, or there might be you you, you might add uh, you know a strike on the count or a ball on the count, or something could be some some small penalty. Uh, so you could do it that way, and that would limit the the number of times it it got used uh, during the course of the game. But you know, on the other hand, in baseball you have something that you don't have in football, which is you have crazy managers going out and kicking dirt at umpires and throwing bases and so on and so forth, uh, which can take five minutes. It can take ten minutes to have some of these arguments. So it's not even that clear to me that at the end of the day, by introducing instant replay uh, in baseball for more types of plays, it actually lengthened the time of the game.
0: You've been listening to an interview with Andrew Zimblist about his book, In the Best Interests of Baseball, Governing the National Pastime, published in an updated edition by the University of Nebraska Press in 2013. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers dozens of channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications on subjects like philosophy, science, law, and language. If you like what you heard here, please follow New Books and Sports on Twitter or friend us on Facebook. You can give us your feedback, offer suggestions, and find links to thoughtful sports writing from around the world. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thank you for listening, and enjoy your week.